it's an honor and a pleasure to be here. I think now the fun part, uh, Peter, you want to join me and we'll have a conversation? I do. And would you join me in thanking Peter Diamandis? Thank you, friend. Thank well you. done. Thank you. Well done. You talked about your role as an investor, your role as a thought leader. You didn't say that, but I'll say it. As a thought leader, as a founder, as a father, as a brother, as a son. How, can you use a noun or two just to describe how you think about what you do? Uh, I play. I play. Um, I, Is that what I, you thought you were going to do when you were a kid? No, I mean, so I, I, when I say play, I mean, I'm, I've got to a point where for in most of my life, not all my life, because I, I do feel a tremendous amount of responsibility for the things I do, especially when I bring in investor capital or I employ people or I, uh, you know, uh, inspire, educate. But for most of the time, I am, I'm going with my heart. I'm, I'm, I, what you see with me is what you get. I'm, I wear my emotions and my beliefs on my sleeve. I'm... I'm just basically that, and so I, I do what I love to do. I'm driven by my passion. So that, that passion I spoke to that I so want for my kids, uh, that, that I was so lucky to get as a child, uh, I, I've learned to live that out loud, right? Unapologetically, un 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 unabashedly, this is what I love doing, this is what I do, and I do it with everything I've got. So let me ask you the same question I asked our group earlier. Are you driven by the past or are you called to the future? Oh, most I don't think about the past at all. I, I'm so called to the future. It's, I'm just, I'm, uh, you know, I, I have these things I call Peter's laws that are these, these sort of truisms I've uh, adopted, created, borrowed, adopted, modified, and I actually have them out. There's like 30 of them now. Um, and, and one of them is the best way to predict the future is create it yourself. Um, and it's a, it's a variant of what other people have said in the past, and I believe that. So I'm just focused on seeing, creating the future I want to see. I, I want to open up the space frontier because I want to do that myself. I, I, wanna, I, I need to have an extra 30, 40 years to be able to get to the next 100 years. So I'm just damned if I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Is it true? that you used to drive a black Firebird in Boston? <laughs> yeah, I had a Trans Am uh, with a big gold Firebird on the, on the front. Uh, I was very, very lucky. Um, my parents were both immigrants from, a, uh, uh, from an island in, in Greece, Lesbos, and uh, my dad was a, you know, basi basically had nothing and worked his way through medical school, met my mom, and then moved to the U.S. And he became a successful York physician, so uh, I worked hard, and he was my inspiration for working hard, but I, I was very lucky to have been able to have such a fancy car at age 18. <laughs> Do, uh, is it true that you had a nickname when you were at MIT? <laughs> yes, my nickname at MIT was Pete in Space. Pete in Space. Pete in Space. Was there a contraction? Yeah, there was a contraction. Um, if you, uh, the initials were P-I-S or PISS. Um, so it was very funny. I had a, a, a dear, I'll, I'll tell this story for the hell of it. There's a, a fraternity brother of mine named Ron Rodriguez, who, wonderful man, uh, had never been drunk in his life. So 
uh, my sophomore year, I, I made an intention to get him drunk on beer, and uh, he did. And uh, he, like, uh, in the midst of this, he goes, you're Pete in space. You're piss. And, and that just stuck, as it would with fraternity. So, um, uh, and so I, I turned that around by just signing everything, every document, PIS. I just, like, said, okay, you know, and I can give you permission to abuse me with it. I'm going to just adopt it fully <laughs> and just, like, embrace it fully. And then my fourth year of, uh, of school, we added a, my senior year, we, all the rooms in my fraternity had names, had unusual names, the Airbnb, you know, the bone room, and they all had origin stories of how they got those names, and it was the first person to live in that room gave that room a name. And my fourth year of, my senior year, we added a fourth floor to my fraternity. And uh, uh, I, because I was senior, in the senior class, I got to opt, and I got a single, and I got to name it. <clears throat> and so uh, you put your name before the, the, the house, and they would vote to approve your name. And so I proposed that it be called uh, the Galactic Empire, nothing too ostentatious. And uh, we had gone through all the naming. My, my, my room was, was, uh, was last. Everybody had been unanimously approved. I say, all in favor? No one raises their hands. And I'm like, and then Kevin Short, I'll never forget him either, says, I have an alternate room name for, uh, for the single I want to propose. <coughs> and he goes, I want to call it the urinal because piss lives there. <laughs> all, in, all in favor? Unanimous. I. So if you, go, if you go to the 372 Memorial Drive, uh, Theta Delta Chi right now, the single up in the Upper Eastern is called urinal. the urinal. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. I'm, I'm so proud of that. <laughs> So uh, a lot of people in this room are uh, parents, and you were chatting about, uh, I think you made a bold uh, point. You said, I don't think my sons will ever have a driver's license. And um, when Jeff Holden spoke to us yeah. at the A360 meeting in January, I must admit, I went into that meeting as a bit of a skeptic about autonomous cars, and, and as you pointed out, really more on what would, would be the impact on business models across our businesses. Yeah. Uh, and I came out convinced. But I have a lingering concern. I wonder if you could talk about it. So you had a black Firebird Trans Am. And you, know, you are in a state where the uh, motto is live free or die, buddy. Does it ever concern you that some of this great technology we're talking about has as a, uh, a consequence that it just scrapes away at some of our liberty? I mean, maybe you want to drive that black Firebird Trans Am. Maybe you even want to drive it 85 miles an hour down the highway. That's kind of your personal responsibility as to whether you take that on and you take the consequences. Yeah, Talk to us about that. Sure, sure. So I would posit that I can't take a horse and carriage down a highway today um, unless I'm in a special part and a special area. And I think there will be places you can go and drive your car on your own uh, where it's allowed. But we're gonna, you're going to be in a world where autonomous cars are, um, are saving lives and a human-driven car is a danger to people uh, in that system. Um, I'm a libertarian capitalist, I would describe myself as, probably. You know, I'm very much for as much freedom, don't tell me what I can and cannot do. Uh, but I think I look at my, what I can do as increasing layers of capability uh, and if I, if I let go of how I do it, but what I want to do. 
Um, so I, I, I don't know. I think letting go of the ability to drive a 5,000-pound vehicle at 60 or 80 miles an hour down the freeway, um, letting go of that and saying, I can do that just in certain circumstances, and I can do it in the VR world, um, as a, a small price to pay for the upsides we're going to get. You know, we forget that our lives do change. Nothing is static. Or, you know, I don't go and milk my own cow or plant my own corn anymore. Right, right. Because I've given, when I let go of those things, I get, you know, we're, we all have one thing in common, Peter, and, and, and you were alluding to this earlier. We're all born with the same 24 hours in a day and seven days a week. It's how you use that time that is the matter. If, if you're rich enough and you have a private plane, you can avoid an hour of, TSA scrutiny at, at Logan, right? And people buy back time sure. uh, with that. So I think this is all a matter of uh, trade-offs, tra you know. Yeah. The Ansari X Prize, mm. how long would, do you think of that in terms of inception to awarding of the prize? Uh, I read The Spirit of St. Louis in my parents' guest room over Christmas in December of 1993. Okay. And uh, I'm reading this book, and I knew of Lindbergh, but I had no idea that Lindbergh crossed the Atlantic to win a prize. Yeah. And, and in the book, uh, he documents all the teams competing for the prize and how much money they were spending. I became enamored by this. I started taking notes in the margins. This team is spending $25,000, win a $25,000 prize. This team is spending $100,000. And I added up at the end of the book, it's $400,000 spent to win a $25,000 prize. And I'm going, wow, that's great economics. Um, for the prize giver. Um, and so I came up with the idea. I wrote X prize in the back of the book. X, I had no idea who was going to be my Orteg or my Nobel or my Pulitzer. X was a variable to be replaced by the name of the person who's going to put the money. Right. That's where X prize came from. And it turned out X was Roman numeral 10 and, you know, experimental. It worked really well. And then X became cool with the X games and X files. and. SpaceX and everything else X that's followed since then. Um, so 1993, uh, we announced the prize under the arch in St. Louis in 96. Without 10 million, I did not have the money at the time. Uh, finally got the money in 2002. It was won in 2004. So that was like 11 years, 10 years. So 10 years, so you know about passion and persistence for long-term goals. Yeah, I would say most of my stuff has been overnight successes after 10 years of hard work. <laughs> right. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and yet last year... But by the way, none of that stuff would have continued had I not been absolutely my heart and soul passionate about it. I would have given up. It would have been dismissively, oh, it's too hard. No, no right. Yeah. Right. And so last year, we uh, on this uh, stage, we chatted with Angela Duckworth, who's written uh, beautifully about grit. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned the grit being one of the three characteristics you want to instill in your family. Yeah. Is there ever a time when you uh, feel like there's too much grit or grit is not a help? I mean, the, the biggest challenge is if you're an entrepreneur and your company is flailing, when do you give up? Right? When is putting another ounce of energy or another dollar in diminishing returns? Yeah. And for me, uh, my only answer to that, and I wrote about that in, in bold, was when it's not in your 
in your massively transformative purpose. Right, so at A360, as you know, I speak a lot about helping find your MTP. What is your massively transformative purpose? What is your, what is your purpose in life? You know, what would you live, what would you die for and then go and live for that? And if something is inside the realm of your MTP, um, then, then even if you never succeed, if you've moved your own knowledge and your own heart and soul and the world forward, that's worth it. Uh, but sometimes what happens is you rationalize and you compromise and you sort of go off in this direction over here and then it's important to realize that and kill it. Yeah. Did everyone sort of catch that? Is there a purpose that you would die for and then go live for it? Uh, Peter, a lot of people in this room are really seasoned, successful people in their professions and their businesses. Many of them have built organizations. And you have a saying about how the squeaky wheel gets replaced. Yeah. Could you help us understand more about that? Yeah, so uh, you guys know this, uh, hire slowly, fire quickly, right? And at the end of the day, uh, uh, some of the greatest leaders out there who I've studied and read said, you know, you need to, uh, when you identify a problem, it needs to be the first thing you, you focus on. At the beginning of the day, it's like eat, eat the, uh, I forget the analogy, eat the toads first, whatever they say. But it's like, it's like you have a list of all the things you can do. It start with the hardest problems and solve them first. And um, the idea of, of greasing old things to get them to work versus uh, replacing them. And I don't mean people here. I, I, in some cases, people who are problematic to your organization. But it's also just realizing that uh, that you need to revitalize uh, what you do and how you do it all the time. You can't, I mean, you can just continue to squeeze out of something, but you're then riding it into the ground into to zero. Everybody's core business goes to zero eventually uh, because it's reinvented over time. And so unless you're uh, disrupting yourself and reinventing yourself, uh, and part of that is a game you have to play. You have to enjoy the idea of, okay, how would I reinvent this? And one of the ways, I didn't spend a lot of time on it, I think about it, is how do you dematerialize and demonetize your business? How do you dematerialize and demonetize? So I'll give a, short, a small story. Uh, so the XPRIZE Foundation, very proud of it. Um, I just found a great CEO, Marcus Shingles, who runs that day to day for me now. I serve as executive chairman and founder. He's a CEO, um, and he's uh, so many years ago, I wanted to dematerialize and demonetize the XPRIZE. So the XPRIZE Foundation will, do, will launch two, three, four, 10, 20, 30, 50 million dollar prizes every year. Big prizes. We can only do a few number of them. And people will come to me and say, oh, could, you, could I do a, hundred, a million dollar prize for that or a hundred thousand? And I, I can't. You know, it's just doesn't, that's not how we're structured. And I said, okay, I want to create a platform play. Platforms are really important things for you to think about when we create platform play where other people can build prizes on top of that. And I tried to build it inside my organization. I tried to get a team, I tried to, I could not do it. I could not change my own organization of 100 people worth a damn. Me, I could, I was like, inspire them, try and change it, could not do it. It's like, fuck this. It's like, it drove me <laughs> nuts. And what I ended up doing was I ended up hiring someone outside the organization, raising the money for them, giving XPRIZE 30%, yeah. 
and saying, stay away and start it over here. And so that became HeroX, which is a dematerialized, demonetized. So they're launching hundreds of prizes per year. A thousand karma prizes, which are zero, thousand bucks, fifty, you know, ten thousand, hundred thousand dollars. And they'll have a they're not going to be as gold plated and as as curated as X prizes, but they're valuable for organizations. And the X Prize is now benefiting from that that process. So a lot of times you need true innovation needs to happen outside of your core. Right. Incidentally, uh, at Bigelow, we uh, have been using HeroX. It's HeroX.com. H-E-R-O-X.com. Uh, we have a, uh, a project going on where we're um, looking to um, advance some technology, some AI machine learning technology in the identification of buyers in the M&A market. And so this is an area that I just say to you, but we found it to be, we're not complete, but we found it to be very easy to use and a great thing to use and a great way to, to put a lot of resources quickly. Yeah. If you don't know about a field, you don't need to know about a field. Someone else, you know about your problems, yeah. right? Knowing about a problem is more important than anything else. I like to say the world's biggest problem is the world's biggest business opportunities. And if you understand a problem space really well, that's gold. Other people understand AI, robotics, other things. So if you can create a competition and say, here's the problem I want solved, here's what solved looks like, and then let them figure out how to solve it using their stuff. Yeah. So you know, we think of you as a thought leader in this domain that you just spent uh, an hour and a half with us thinking about. Who are some thought leaders in other domains that you rely upon? Well, I wrote about a lot of them in, in, in bold. Um, uh, you know, Ray Kurzweil has become a mentor and a dear friend. He's my co-founder in Singularity University. A lot of my thinking has been shaped by him. Uh, he's one of the most prolific uh, thinkers in the field of exponential technologies and artificial intelligence. I'm very proud to call him a, a dear friend. We serve on multiple boards together, have invested together. Um, I've gotten to know... Uh, you know, Bezos I've known for 35 years. Uh, my first organization ever was a group called SED, Students for Exploration and Development of Space. I started at MIT, and he uh, and, and grew it to a national organization, and Jeff ran the Princeton chapter. Um, uh, and just watching him uh, and his appetite and his skill of marching up and down the value chain yeah. and sideways on the value chain, right? So it's interesting. You see a lot of these companies don't ever disrupt their core business. What they do is they disrupt their adjacencies. So in the book selling, he went into the book publishing and then into the music publishing and then the video publishing and then the video creation. And then, so it's interesting how that, how that you don't want to get in the way of the Amazon bulldozer. Um, well, yeah, I, I think your point earlier when you first started out was you were interested not so much in the technology but in the business model yeah. evolution from the technology. Yeah. And I must say, in, you know, in our shop, when we heard about Amazon acquiring Whole Foods, our reaction really wasn't about retail grocers. We think retail grocers are retail grocers. A lot of them deserve to go out of business. <laughs> uh, but it was really about what is the impact nationally on real estate? Because suddenly if you have retail grocers in jeopardy, and many of them are hold down the ends of strip malls. What happens to everybody else there? Yeah, you know, is that zipping of uh, yes, thing. Yeah. is it sustainable? Yeah. So um, one of the things that occurs to me is that many of the entrepreneur owner managers in this room, Peter, uh, operate organizations that are in their niches. They're they're super successful, but they do what they do in 
relative anonymity. You, on the other hand, have recently been on like every radio show, every podcast, every newspaper, every magazine. I'm just imagining, only knowing you just a teensy bit, I'm imagining that must be very challenging. So um, what's the best thing about achieving some fame? Um, so interesting, right? Uh, it's, it's an interesting loss of privacy uh, because when I'm walking around, people come and stop me, I start to realize that, oh, I need to be careful what I say or what I do in public because 10 to 1 people do not say anything to me. So that's interesting. But um, my ability to gain access to uh, some of the most incredible people in the world has become easier than before, uh, which is great um, because it, my, my desire to do big things and solve problems uh, uh, increases. I also have a, a desire to, uh, to try and, and, and help people realize that uh, they can do more, right? I get very frustrated by people who are extraordinarily wealthy and don't do anything with it. The number of billionaires out there sitting on their money and not changing the world drives me up the wall. And so I've become very outspoken about this idea and I've, I'm gonna be announcing in January in partnership, Tony Robbins has become a dear friend and we've got a project we're working on. I, I'll say just a little about it now but it's not for tweeting or discussion. I'll talk about it at A360. Um, I call it, uh, so I've been very uh, uh, critical about the giving pledge. Mm -hmm. Right, and uh, the notion that, you know, with Gates and, uh, and Warren Buffett talk about of commit to giving half your health wealth away during your lifetime or whatever to a foundation, that's okay. I, don't, I honestly don't know what's so revolutionary about that. Um, what I want people to do instead is commit to what they're gonna do with their wealth during their lifetime. And so we're calling this the impact pledge, which is to say, I want you to call your shot. You know, so Tony's shot is he wants to feed a billion people. Mm -hmm. Fantastic, yeah. right? I wanna increase the human lifespan. I wanna gain, you know, solve these problems through the XPRIZE. So I wanna start getting people who have tremendous skills at creating wealth. And they've got, besides their wealth, they've got amazing intelligence and networks and so forth. Call your shot. What is the problem you want to solve during your lifetime? You know, uplifting women in India, creating safety for this, feeding these people, creating education there, and get people to really uh, 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 publicly call their shot and then, and then stand up for that and actually measure it and watch them do it. Because I think, I, I think that, you know, we can, can, we can accelerate how well we solve problems on this planet. So Peter mentioned Abundance 360, and I just want to give you some context. The Abundance 360 group is a group of business owners who come together once a year in Los Angeles at the end of January. It's a group that was founded by Peter. It's a group that I'm a member of, Jen and Mark are members of, and uh, Jay Jacobs is a member of. And maybe are there other people here I'm missing? And the group uh, comes together, uh, founded by Peter and facilitated by Peter, to uh, think about, um, among other things, the convergence of uh, exponentially changing technologies and how it affects our businesses and our families and our communities and our organizations. And um, uh, the commitment on the part of the group is to come together every year for 25 years. 
which is part of its attractiveness to me. Tony Robbins last year at the A360 meeting said, um, tell me um, the books you're going to read in the next five years and the people you're going to hang out with in the next five years and I'll tell you what your quality of life is going to be. Yeah. So w What are you reading? Uh, uh, I'm reading a lot of science fiction these days. Uh, um, surprise, so, surprise. Uh, <laughs> but it's uh, the last science fiction book I was, uh, I was uh, reading, and I'll call it my Audible list. So I, I've got no point. Everybody here using Audible? So I'm probably consuming, you know, a couple books a week on Audible, uh, just because it's so easy to uh, wherever I'm, I'm moving. If I've got five minutes free, I'm plugging into this. But there was uh, um, uh, one particular book called The Change Agent, which is a look at where uh, where we're going to be going with CRISPR-Cas9 technologies and your ability to edit your own genome. And uh, you know, science fiction is is exploring a lot of different areas. Uh, in interesting ways. I read a book called The Zero Marginal Economy by Jeremy Rifkin recently, and it's a look at where it's a post-capitalist economy, right? And so if you look at the notion that we're demonetizing everything, uh, there is a future in the near future, uh, uh, one of the technologies I'll be bringing to the stage at A360 this year is in nanotechnology. Um, I do my convergence catalyzers, which I really in enjoy, where I'll bring three uh, CEO, CTO thought leaders on stage and in three fields, and we'll play, we'll play jazz about how these three fields are coming together and converging and creating new business opportunities. My goal is how can, I, how can we create jazz on stage where I'm going to hear something that I've never heard before that's going to be an unfair advantage about where something is going. So we've got three we have um, material sciences, the CTO of uh, applied materials. Material sciences are like one of the most underappreciated, amazing areas that's creating new materials for muscles for robots or new material clothings or batteries or all kinds of stuff. And material science is so important. So he's going to be uh, Dean Kamen in robotics. Uh, and then uh, Ramez Nam on energy. So the combination of material, energy, and robotics, how is that going to transform things? Where are, the, where are the connections of those? And then the other one, that's near term. That's two to five year horizon look. The other one is 10 to 15 years, and it's going to be, Ray's going to come and spend a day with us, Ray Kurzweil again. And then I'm going to have um, one of the, uh, uh, Brian Johnson, one of the top thinkers in brain-computer interface. He's committed hundreds of millions of dollars to brain-computer interface. Um, along with Elon Musk and, and, uh, and Zuckerberg and all these guys. And then the third is going to be on, on nanotechnology. Uh, Rob Freitas uh, is going to be coming, uh, and Ralph Merkel. And so nanotechnology is a technology that's accelerating faster than expected. Uh, and the final result, uh, and that final result, maybe it's 20 years from now, not more than 30 years from now. I have a nanobot, which is a device that can rearrange atoms, right? Your body is a nano, has got nanobot. Your body is a nanomachine. It's rearranging atoms all the time. A seed, imagine, you throw a seed in the ground, it's got the information set to gather all the right atoms from the ground and create this giant oak tree. I mean, it's just very much in slow motion. But a nanobot in the future, if I have one, I say, okay, make 100 of yourselves, and I give you each one. That nanobot is now, you can throw it in the ground and say, make me a Ferrari or make me a mansion, 
and it rearranges the atoms and says, I, I need some titanium, please toss me some titanium. But in the future, what is the value of something? It's the cost of energy, the information set, and the raw material. And so this zero marginal economy book looks at where that's, that, that cool. future is going. Cool. So uh, my final question for you is, you and I magically go to sleep tonight and we magically wake up tomorrow and it's September 23rd, 2042. 25 years from now. Mm. And I look at you and say, Peter, how are, how are you? How have you been? You say, great. And I say, what are you working on? Yeah. What is it? Wow. So, yeah, so great question. And that time frame is a one I would struggle with answering for a couple of reasons. 25 years from now, the power that we will each have uh, dwarfs our abilities today. So the projection that Ray talks about and we'll be talking about it on stage this year uh, and the billions of dollars going into brain-computer interface means that uh, the projection is by the mid-2030s we're gonna have uh, brain-computer interface. What does that mean? Your neocortex, your brain has what's called these uh, these units called uh, these pattern recognizers are 300 million of them in your brain. They have 100 neurons each. And that's it. Your brain is like, you know, you only have a limited amount of, of brain capacity. I Lim knew it. Um, and, and so BCI is where, just like this phone, it's got a certain amount of processing and memory on it. And then when it lets you do something difficult like voice recognition or image recognition, it goes to the cloud and uses the additional computational services there uh, over a gigabit, soon to be a terabit network. Your brain's gonna do the same thing. Imagine a time when you think something, like I wanna know what the GDP of Namibia is and I know it instantly because my brain can call out to Google and bring information in. Or I need, I wanna understand what this quantum equation means and I don't and I can again call the processing power so what happens when we've got godlike abilities at that point um, where uh, where our ability to imagine something in our brain and materialize it so I, I look for something called interface moments interface moments are when a interface makes something complicated easy to use uh, the Netscape or uh, Mosaic was an interface moment on top of the World Wide Web, right? Uh, App Store was an interface moment on top of a million iPhones that allowed a, a entrepreneur to create wealth on top of that. So I look for interface moments. The ultimate interface moment is gonna be uh, your AI shell. And so when, when you're able to describe something and say, I'd like a spacecraft that can image this in the thermal spectrum and can be, do, you just describe what you want. And you don't know how to, you don't need to know how to build anything. And your AI can then interface with the 3D printers, whatever the case might be, and manufacture what you want. So we're heading towards a time of extraordinary godlike power, and I say that without the religious connotation with a with small g, but 25 years from now, while it feels like yesterday, uh, 25 years ago, uh, is we're at the steep part of this curve. And so I 
don't know what moonshots I'll have imagined. Uh, asteroid mining and human longevity will, will, will be simple by then. You heard it here first. <laughs> Peter, thank you.